So we continue this morning in the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Matthew chapter 18. We'll be in verses 1 through 9. And of course, we'll have it up on the screen as well. In this chapter, uh, if you wanted to think about this whole of chapter 18, what it really is about is about what does it look like to, to live rightly in community, to, to see ourselves rightly, to see others rightly, and how to respond in various situations. And I would say this chapter, each, each section that we're going to go over, is pretty challenging. You know, today when we're, we'll talk about what it means to, to become like a child. Uh, next week we'll be talking about what it means to, to pursue wandering sheep. And then the last week of this chapter we'll talk about it, what it looks like to be people who forgive people over and over and over and over and over again. No limit forgiveness. So this is, this is a counter-kingdom vision of what it means to be a community. And so there's good news in it, right? That might feel heavy, but Jesus is with us. He wants to give us better than what we would do on our own. So Matthew 18, I must have flipped the wrong place here. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9. All right, you just all got comfortable. So let's stand, right? Just as an embodied act to say, this is not the newspaper we're reading, right? This is not social media. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. You can be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. As we often do, Father, we pray with Jesus what he prayed for us, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Set us apart in your truth. To be your people who are in the world, who don't retreat, who don't hide, but who are not of the world. Protect us from compromise of the gospel that is good news to a world fighting to find its way and only what can be found in you. Shape us today, Holy Spirit, for your glory, for our good, and the good of our neighbors and the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So everybody seems to be liking murder mysteries nowadays, at least a good one. So I, I want to let you in on a secret. There is a killer in the room. And we'll come back to that later. Maybe you can guess by the, by the time we finish. It's not the butler. I read an article, I don't know when, a few years ago, and it, it really struck me when I saw the title. It was called The Privilege of Mediocrity. 
And as I went back to look at, for this article, I found that there's like TED Talks on embracing mediocrity and, and various type of things. You can go look at those, but I just want to read a bit from this article because I did find it. And, and this guy wrote, I believe it was in the New York Times, you know, the great center of historic Christianity. It said this, he said, I'm a little surprised by how many people tell me they have no hobbies. It may seem like a, a small thing, but at the risk of sounding grandiose, I see it as a sign of civilization in decline. The idea of leisure, of having time to, to have a hobby, after all, is a unique and hard-won achievement in the history of the world. It presupposes that we have overcome the exigencies of brutal survival. Yet here in the United States, the wealthiest country in history, we seem to have forgotten the importance of doing things solely because we enjoy them. Yes, I know we're all very busy between work and family and social obligations. Where are we supposed to find the time? But he says, and this is where we're going. So, you know, there's, there's echoes of God's truth even, even in the world, right? All our hearts are longing for God even when people don't know it. He says, there's a deeper reason, though, I've come to think, that so many people don't have hobbies. We're afraid of being bad at them. Or rather, we are intimidated by the cultural expectation, itself the hallmark of our intensely public and performative age, that we must actually be skilled at what we do in our free time. Our hobbies, if that's even the word for them anymore, have become too serious, too demanding, too much an occasion to be anxious about whether we're really the person we claim to be. We'll come back to this. Our identity just gets wrapped up in everything. If you're a jogger, it's no longer good enough to just cruise around the block. you got to be training for the next marathon. you got to have the best watch. you got to have the best shoes, right? All of a sudden it becomes, well, I used to just like to run. Now I've got to be the runner. If you're a painter, you no longer pass a pleasant afternoon, just you and your watercolors among the water lilies. You're trying to land a gallery show or at least garner a respectable social media following. When your identity is linked to your hobby, you better be good at it or else who are you? Why am I reading this? This isn't a sermon about hobbies. It's because this temptation that if we're not the greatest, then it's not worth it, is in the water we drink. And just like for these disciples, it flows into how we view the church, how we view the kingdom, how we view our participation in missional community, and fight club, in our everyday relationships, even as we gather on this Sunday morning to worship Jesus. And so many of us are wasting our lives, missing out on joy, missing out on community, missing out on relationships, because we're just trying so dang hard to be great. To attain status. To be better than others. And here's the dirty little secret. It's never going to be enough. Even for those who get to the top, right? I'll date myself. We used to have VH1 behind the music. <laughs> but now we've got the Elvis movies, the Whitney movies, 
the Phil and the Blake Charles movies, the Johnny Cash movies. How does it end for all the greatest? <laughs> it's not like, wow, I was recognized. I won it all. I was better than everybody. And now I ride off into the sunset in joy. Usually I die of an addiction is what happens. Because we weren't created to be famous like that. We kill ourselves trying to be great for our own glory because we believe that's how we prove ourselves. We want our efforts validated. And sadly, because we forget God and the gospel, we want our existence validated. And the world tells us it's not worth existing if you're not the greatest. And that is a lie of the devil. In this process, we hurt ourselves, we hurt other people, we grow resentful, we begin to hate, we begin to doubt God, and we lose our lives trying to gain them. We lose our identity apart from titles, roles, opportunities, and success. We forget in the process why we were even doing what we're doing in the first place. What started off as something that we had passion and joy for becomes something that's more like a, a chain, a ball and chain around our legs. And so we dream, what, what is, it's either I got, I'm the best or I'm nothing. There's little joy. And when the joy comes, that joy is so tethered to that success is it's now how, now that I've got to this point, how do I keep myself at this point? And this mindset gets brought into the kingdom and it destroys community. Does not the story of God begin with an angel who had to be the greatest? Does not the fall and rebellion of humanity begin with that fallen angel saying to the first humans, you can be gods. This is not a mes message to kill godly ambition for His glory. It's not a message to kill you from a desire to have greater skill and expertise in certain areas. Those things are great, but it is a message to kill the desire for us to make a name for ourselves. Because that is a tower that will fall once you build it. Either in this life or the next. This is a message about how a zeal for status and greatness hurts your life and hurts God's people. It leads off this whole chapter, like I've already said, on what it means to be kingdom community. And it begins with understanding that true greatness in the kingdom is being freed from the ambition of the status of greatness in the world. I'm going to say that again. This is very countercultural, if not in here, in the world. True greatness in the kingdom of Jesus is being freed from the ambition of the status of greatness in the world. The first thing we got to do to grow towards this vision Jesus gives us of true greatness is we've got to see ourselves seeking the greatness of status in the world. Notice what happens here. At that time, verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus saying, 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus' disciples are bringing their ambition of status into their vision of Jesus' kingdom. This is within the disciples. Now, now you've you got to wonder, right? We break these texts down and do them week by week, so I always try to bring back in the context. Remember, Jesus has brought Peter aside and said, hey, you're the rock. You're going to be the leader, right? Jesus has went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't take all of them with him, right? He took three. So Jesus has his three. There's the 12. Some say there's the 70. There's the 120. There's the crowds, however you want to break it down. He's saying the kingdom of God is coming, right? This has been his message. You're my disciples. The kingdom is coming. And so these guys, you can just imagine, are starting to wonder who's going to be at the top. And if you doubt that interpretation, just keep reading. They're actually going to ask him later, who's going to be at your right hand when the kingdom comes? They want to know who's going to be the most important. Like this whole kingdom thing, church thing's good, but who really matters? Started from the bottom, right? But here we go. Who's going to end up on top? And to clarify this, what they're asking is who's going to have the highest rank? The greatest status. So in this kingdom, there will be rule and responsibility. So imagine, they're almost viewing this like a reality TV show. You know, we got Top Chef and all these other things. Imagine Top Disciple. And if you watch these guys, right, they're always competing. And for some warped reason, we as Americans like to watch these cooking shows where these people are in a kitchen in frantic anxiety and some dude's shouting and cursing at them, right? And we're like, yeah, you know why? <laughs> I mean, that's in the water we drink, right? Like, we celebrate that. Top disciple. They want influence, right? Who's going to be the guy who has the most authority? Who's going to be the person people listen to? They're not thinking about virtues and beatitudes. They're thinking about entitlement, authority, power, and control. Like the kingdom of this world, like a feudal mind mindset with a caste system culture. And their compulsion is to bring that into the kingdom. Now, much of my life, and I've shared these stories before, I'm not going to give them in detail, from a young age and from kind of some wounding experiences in school, was a desire to belong. A desire to, to, to if not be the greatest, to at least get in whatever I saw was the inner circle. Right? So, me sitting over here on the, I still see it, it was a gym, right? Sitting on the bleachers. And there's the inner circle or the ones who are getting to actually play basketball, right? Kindergartner sitting over there saying, how do I get into that? Because I'm not. Just bringing that throughout my life into, into school, into seminary, and seeing those guys who are in college even who are kind of in a certain professor's inner circle, and you're like, how do I get into that? And it poisons the water of what God wants to do. 
I'm sharing that to say I resonate with the disciples. I'm not so bold as to say who's the greatest. But my heart is pulled to say it looks like there's levels and layers. How do I get at that one? To quote another, uh, I had some implicit quotes here. But here's Madonna. This is from a commentary by Tim Keller. She said this. Does, do y'all remember Madonna? That's probably another thing. If you've watched the new Weird Al biopic, that might help you. Uh, which Josiah strongly recommends, but don't judge our parenting. All right. So she said this. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. So you might look at Madonna if you know who she is, flamboyant, right? I don't care. I'm Miss Successful. I do it my way. But she says, it's, my drive's been to overcome this horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. You wonder why people push the envelope, right? It's from insecurity. <laughs> she says again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Do you feel that? that? That's a world that needs the good news of Jesus that we have this morning. But we're in a room full of people who've probably all thought the same thing, right? Or felt the same thing, or know people that do. C.S. Lewis, in one of his memorable essays, it's called The Inner Ring. I hadn't heard of this until a few years ago. It's great, and I'm lingering too long here on this point, but I want, I want us to feel this before we move on. Is, is he talks about this, he says to feel excluded or out of the inner ring is miserable. Yet the desire to be in can make you say things you would not otherwise say or do things to stay there. The desire to be on the inside of whatever group you aspire to join can affect your relationships at work, in the community, and in the church. The desires are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves. Certain inner rings are unavoidable. However, Lewis says, the desire which draws us into inner rings is another matter. A thing may be morally neutral, and yet the desire for that thing may be dangerous. And unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life. From the moment you enter that, your profession till you're too old to care. And if you do nothing about it, if we're not aware of this, if you drift with the stream... You may, in fact, become an inner ringer. You may be a successful one. But you will be enslaved. Whether by pining for being in the inner ring or moping outside rings you can never enter or by passing triumphantly further and further in, one way or another you will become that type of person. Let's skip down here. He says, he says this, the quest for the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. But if you break it, if you can get free 
from that quest, that motivation to get be on the inner ring. He says a surprising result will follow. If in your working hours you make the work your end, your end, your goal, your telos, your purpose, you will presently find yourself all unawares inside the only circle in your profession that really matters. You will be one of the sound craftsmen and the other sound craftsmen will know it. This approach may not lead to fame, fortune, or influence, but it will lead to the respect of people who really know what's going on. Pursuing good work often will often lead to friendship. Maybe not the inner ring, but true friendship. People who see the same truths and value the same things. You will find this circle not as exclusive as the same ones were before, but inclusive to those who grasp these common fruits and values. So do we see ourselves in this? Seeking the greatness of status by the way of the world. We see the emptiness of this when we look out in the world, but we've got to be willing to see it in our own hearts. The anxiety and the insecurity by grasping for someone else to validate us by giving us a role, a title, a voice, an influence. This is the way of the enemy. Validate me. Validate me. Validate me. Validate me. Tell me I'm enough. Tell me I matter. Tell me I'm not inadequate. What happened to us in our stories that that is so powerful? We know what happened in the story of God. We were led astray to believe that we did not have a status already that was enough. So we go on. We see ourselves in seeking status in the way of the world. The second thing we have to do is see ourselves in the status of a child, particularly the status of a child in the first century ancient Near East. It was going to be really different because we're in a totally different culture of how we view children. So they ask this, who's the greatest? And the first thing Jesus does is he does this very shocking visual object lesson. And he brings a child and just puts it right in the middle of them. This would have been a head scratcher for the disciples. Who's the greatest? Little kid. In the Greek there, not to be that preacher in the Greek. This isn't even in the masculine or the feminine. It's in what they call the good old neuter. Don't get scared. Not neutered. The neuter. It's calling the kid a it. Right? In my self-righteousness, I get a little like all up in my feelings when somebody talks about a kid as a it, even before it's born, because I'm like, that's a person. But Jesus said, Jesus brings it before them. Because in the first century ancient Near East, a kid, I mean, it was still valued as a person, but not like we think of kids today. R.T. France, the commentator, says he's calling for a radical inversion of their natural assumptions about leadership and importance. And he says this is a shock tactic. And to the, to the use of that language, the it, he said, we're given no indication of the identity of the child, male or female, and that's as it should be. The child's anonymity makes the point. This child has no name for itself. 
So this is a surprising and shocking call. So he, he goes on in verse 3 and he doesn't now just speak to, to being the greatest, but now even to just being in the kingdom at all. He says, unless you turn, unless you repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is super got to be clarified. And thank goodness you want to go check it. I don't know of any commentator that disagrees with what I'm about to say. But I've heard a lot of sermons that hadn't said this. So... When he says to become like a child, at least in this context, there's other texts that could be debated. He is not saying, oh, children are innocent. You know, they're always humble. They're always trusting. Have you been around any real kids? <laughs> is the word that pops out of your mind humility, self-sacrifice? Others first. Whatever you say, mom and dad. I'm sure there's some somewhere. I don't know if they're in this building right now. No offense. But anyway. But we hear that, right? Become like a child. That's, what Jesus is talking about here is not about virtues. He's talking about status. These children had no status in first century ancient Near Eastern culture. No rank. They can't vote, they can't work, they can't drive, they can't provide. They're not invited to the meetings. I don't like this language, but one, one, one commentator did say pretty much they're culturally, in terms of social status, nobodies. You know, our child-centric culture, right? And I, and I love kids. Hopefully, that's why we do this. We just want to say over and over again, kids are a blessing, not a burden. We love them. Lord, send them, send them all. Give us more kids than adults. But what do we do? We watch movies, and what do they tell us? The adults are the dummies, right? And the little kids are the only ones who can really see what's good in the world, right? And they've got to step in and save all the messed-up adults because the narrative in our culture is, is that children are born you know, pure and innocent until we mess them up. That was not how they thought of things then. And this is a challenge because this is not a challenge for you to, to leave today and say, I need to be more humble, I need to be more trusting, I need to be even more dependent. Which I'm not saying it's a bad application. This is saying, I need to give up seeking a status in the world. I need to give it up. I tell you, it's a little Sawyer up here today. I said, you're going to preach today for me? They're like, nope. <laughs> Started laughing. We've got to repent for grasping for status for our glory. Jesus is saying, you want to talk about what's greatest. If you even want to be in the kingdom, even enter it, as the text said, you've got to check that stuff at the door. You've got to become like a child. It almost speaks to being born again, right? You've you, you got to lay aside all your pride. And you've got to say, i got nothing to bring. But I'm here to serve. Again, R.T. France, to abandon human thoughts of personal status and to accept or even seek a place. Just hear this, to accept or even seek a place 
at the bottom of the pecking order. It implies a radical, as radical a change of orientation as our term conversion or entering the kingdom involves. I'll be at the bottom of the pecking order. Man, that goes against the grain. And then he returns to the, to the matter of their question. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is not against us being great. It's just like everything else in his kingdom. It's upside down. You want to be great? Then quit trying to be great. You want to be the person who actually has the greatest impact? Then quit trying to be the person who's given the greatest influence. This is shocking. You know what these disciples are likely going through when they hear this? They are super disoriented. I've not heard a lot like this before. And you know also what they probably are? Super disappointed. <laughs> I mean, they're asking this question. That means from the start, they're angling for stuff, right? We were fishermen. Now we're going to be the Jesus' right-hand people. They're bringing that into the kingdom. And we do too, Right? I've seen so many leaders in churches, they go on absolute, total power trips because for so long in their lives and other spheres, whether their family of origin, their home life now, or their work life, they are so insecure, nobody cares about them. They, they do these jobs they feel like are meaningless. And all of a sudden, they get this opportunity in a church, right? And this is the place where I'm finally going to get some dadgum status. Somebody's going to see me. Somebody's going to validate me. Somebody's going to value me. And man, when that gets threatened, that's when churches split. That's when things go wrong. Because as somebody wisely said to me a long time ago, you don't ever really know a person until you see how they respond when they don't get what they want. That's when you'll see what's really going on. And I'm looking in the mirror at that one. They're disoriented. They're disappointed. But guess what's happening here? They're being discipled. Jesus loves these guys. And in our culture, if we can't speak to the issue of how power, influence, authority, status, and greatness are viewed, then, then we're missing a big piece of discipleship. But Jesus wants to free them from this resume-building rat race of identity and influence. There is greatness to be had. But kingdom greatness is much different than worldly greatness. We read this story, and I can't remember which sermons we mentioned it in, but uh, I know it's been used before, but it's just so applicable here. The, the book called Everything Sad is Untrue, it's by Daniel Nayiri. I don't know if I can uh, pronounce it right, uh, an Iranian refugee to this country. He and his family, it's a really good book. If you've not read it and you like books, it's kind of targeted as a children's book. I wouldn't say it's a children's book. It's more like an older teen's book. So that won't scare you, right? Like it's, you can enjoy this. Audiobooks available too. It's very good. His mother is the reason that they came to this country because she was converted to Christianity out of Islam. And she was a part of, her, of a particular stream of, a, of the bloodline of Muhammad. So just to give you some context, and we're going to hear this this morning. We've heard it before, but in, the, in this context of what is true greatness? 
He says, it's true, my mom was a Sayyid from the bloodline of the prophet, Muhammad, which you know about now if you'd read the book. In Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. That means if they find you guilty in religious court, they will kill you. If you convert to something else like Buddhism, it's not so bad, probably because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are considered sister religions. And you always have the worst fights with your sister. And probably nothing happens if you're just a six-year-old, except if you say, I'm a Christian now in your school, chances are the committee, that is those who do the persecution, will hear about it. They will raid your house. Because if you're a Christian, your parents probably are also. And the committee does stuff way worse than killing you. When my sister, who was the first one in the family to convert, when my sister walked out of her room and said she'd met Jesus, my mom knew all that was coming. And here's the part that gets hard to believe. This is not a Christian book, by the way. Time Magazine, NPR, all of them like voted it Book of the Year, which is crazy when you hear what I'm about to say. But it, I wonder why. They're longing for something greater than how Madonna's road ends. Seema, my mom, read about Jesus and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow to earn good things, but all you had to do with Jesus was believe He was the one who died for you. And she believed. And He says, when I tell the story in Oklahoma, where there are refugees living at, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, okay, but why did she really convert? Because up to that point, He's told the backstory about the mansion they basically lived in with birds that sat in the walls, the villages his grandfather owned, all the gold, and his mom, who was a doctor in Iran's medical practice. All the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she's a Christian. All the money she gave up, so we're poor now. And that's the rest of the story. They're living a hard life. But he says, I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just tell them what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with a begging hope that he'll, they'll hear her. And she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? He writes, it's true and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of her education to get a medical degree. And all your family, that all her family she lost, her home and the best cream puffs in Jaffa, his favorite snack that he would get. And even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise if and if you believe it's true that there is a God and He wants you to believe in Him and He sent His Son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. NPR, Time Magazine, Book of the Year. Bam. There's no middle or either my mom's insane. You can say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes. You can't say that because she went all the way with it. She had all that wealth the love of all those people in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Sayyid, part of this bloodline of Muhammad. 
and she's poor now. In Oklahoma, people spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in a place people hate refugees. With a husband who hits harder than a second degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. You can go read that story. And you know what she'll tell you? She'll tell you it's worth it because Jesus is better. That's true greatness. Thankfully, he wrote a book about it so we could read it. That's greatness. Ten years in a medical degree. Bloodline of Muhammad. I would get spit on on a bus because of Jesus and raise my son in this broken situation. And the question Jesus has for us today is, will we embrace the vision of true greatness? Will we put off the old vision of greatness? Entitled. You know, sometimes the hardest people are not those who have nothing to bring, but the ones with the biggest resumes. And I say that myself. I remember when, I've I've shared this before, when I stepped into situations where I was not on staff at a church, I honestly came with a like, hey, I can't wait till these people see what I have to offer. Now, there's mixture there, right? Like we're gifted and we have skills, but we've got to check our hearts, right? Jesus is saying become like a child. Age, experience, and education are not entitlements or validations in the kingdom of God. What must be put on is a new vision. Now, what we need is not less ambition... We need more. The Apostle Paul, what does he say in 1 Corinthians 9? I don't have time to go read all this. He said, I run harder than anybody in this race. He says in 1 Corinthians, like, I worked harder than everybody. But what did he work the hardest to be? To count all things as rubbish except for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Ecclesiastes Colossians tell us that when we do our work, we're to do it with all our might. To do everything, but what are we to do it? As unto the Lord. This is humility. It's being right-sized. I'm not everything, but I'm something. And I don't have to be everything. I don't have to be the best, and I still matter, and I still belong. I still have something to offer. Sometimes we talk about this, this thing called the ladder of est. So ladder of E-S-T. Learn this from our tin man friends. So often when we walk into a room, whether a church's Sunday gathering, a missional community, a family meal, our workplace, our neighborhood, is our worldly temptation is to walk into a room and, and rank everybody. Or figure out what the order is, right? It's the ladder of est. And what does est mean? Okay, who's the smartest in this room? Who's the prettiest in this room? Who's the funniest in this room? Who's the most uniquest, if that's a word, in this room? Est. 
And you probably do it whether you admit it or not. We walk in these spaces and we figure out where everybody's at. And then if we're, not, if we're honest, we start figuring out how we're going to relate to people who are where on that ladder. And Jesus is saying, that's got to be crucified. And we've got to get off the ladder and we've got to get everybody else off the ladder in our minds. How do we do that? The last, last thing here. There's a lot in these verses, but this leads us to the table. We've got to see Jesus as the greatest. That he's the greatest who became the least. Verse 5 says, Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. So this is where we'll anchor, anchor that at. You realize that? To receive those in society who have little to no status. Jesus says it's to receive me. Now, children are being used here as a metaphor at this point, right? Because he's speaking to the disciples, right? What does it mean like for us to be great? What's for you as a disciple to be willing to take on this status that is basically nothing in society? And now he's saying, when you don't only take that on, but now you get off the ladder and that's how you start to receive people, guess what? That's when you're actually receiving me. To receive the lowest is to receive Jesus. Why? He became the lowest. The incarnation should blow our minds. Jesus became a baby. The eternal Son of God said, I'm going to let you wipe my butt. Not to be crude. I'm going to have to cut my fingernails. I'm going to have to be disciplined by Mary and Joseph. I'm going to have to grow up with other kids and all the craziness of that. Like we could skip over those first 30 years of Jesus' life, but they're actually very important when it comes to the gospel. He took on no status. And then as Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us, not only did he take on the status of a child, he took on the form of a servant. So now we're talking the other layer, if we're talking social levels in ancient Near East, you got kids down here and you got servants. And who did he serve? Those disciples and those folks sitting in this room right now. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Is that not amazing that Jesus came to serve you? Can we not resonate with Peter when Jesus goes to wash his feet and we're like, what the heck, Jesus? No, 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 (laughs) no. If anybody should be washing feet, I should be washing your feet. And Jesus says, no, I must wash your feet. I must wash all of you. We've got to lay down our pride to receive that, don't we? That's how great he is and that's how needy we are. He was stripped naked and he was spat upon. And he died a common criminal's death in public shame and humiliation. 
He took on the sin and shame and evil of the world and every sin and suffering and satanic attack that's ever went on you. He bore all that on the cross. And yet, how does Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 end? Did the one who become the lowest... How did that story end? Did he stay there? It says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Who is the greatest? Jesus is the greatest. But He's the greatest through the path of being the least, of becoming the last. This guy, this Son of God, did not strive or grasp for greatness. Because he knew who he was. He knew who his Father was. And we can trust him to hold us. This is so missional in our culture. And I think this is what verses 6 through 9 are really about in this context. So in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus talks about cutting off your hand, cutting, taking out your eye, that's in the context of sexual immorality. And he's saying, hey, do whatever it takes, right, to not fall into this sin. In this context, though, this, he's using this, and it's not about sexual immorality. We've got to read this in context. What is this about? The word sin here is the exact same word in chapter 17 at the end where it talks about causing offense or stumbling block. Your Bibles probably have that little bitty one. If you go down to the bottom, it'll say, you could translate this, offend or stumble, stump cause to stumble. What is Jesus saying? Why is this so missional? When you receive others, you're receiving me. And it's super serious. To be the community of God's people that you don't put any stumbling blocks in front of people because of their status in society. It's super important. So important, it's like he says, in the world, temptations will come. Like, the world is going to be like this. The world is going to cause people who don't have status to stumble and to be tempted to say, I don't matter, I don't care, there's not a place for me in the kingdom of God. I just give up. The best I can do is get addicted on something or find some type of worldly success and just make it through this, this world of pain. Jesus is saying, that's going to happen in the world, but woe to you, my disciples and my church, if you're a part of that. Woe to you. This is why he's saying you need to do whatever it takes in the work in your story, in the work in your heart, in the work in your community, in the work in your church to make sure you do not cause anyone to stumble around this issue of status and importance. And if not, this is so important, they, there will be hell to pay. This is how you realize, do you understand the gospel? Understanding the gospel means I ain't no better than anybody. I didn't earn my spot at this table. I don't deserve to be higher up at the table than anybody. No matter what education, experience, entitlement I might think I have. 
Jesus is saying that is a sign that all you have done is taken your pride and your love of yourself and you found another environment to just work that out in known as my kingdom and my church. It's why later in Matthew chapter 25, and we'll get there, he'll say to those on the left, when did we not receive you? When did we not visit you in prison? When did we not give you clothes? When did you not give feed? And Jesus will say, inasmuch as you did not do to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Didn't do it to me. The sad thing is, is we often love the least, the last, and the lost, the broken, the burnout, and the bored, if we're honest, so that we can like show off or get the guilt off our back. <laughs> Jesus wants us to see that when we love the so-called nobodies of the world, that, that, might, that that's actually probably better than getting a book published speaking at a conference or getting paid a lot of money. You may get the applause of God in those places. I mean, the applause of men in those places. But when you just love somebody, and there's no status that comes from it, no influence, no platform, Jesus is saying, that's right where I want you. That's what my kingdom looks like right there. And man, that's good news in our world. A world where everybody is fighting for validation. To be special, to be unique. We are the people who can go and say, let us tell you about the God who created you in His image. Let us tell you about the one who died for you because He loves you so much. You have nothing to prove to anybody, including yourself. So the killer in the room, as I reveal him as we come to the Lord's table, the killer in the room is comparison. Somebody shared this phrase with me a long time ago. It stuck with me. A girl that was in our MC back in Arkansas, she shared as they were leaving, she said, comparison is a joy thief. And it is. Competition for status is a joy thief. But comparison is snuck into the kingdom as a liar, to kill, steal, and destroy, and to rob us from the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. But the good news is we have a good shepherd. And he wants to set us free. And he's went as far as to give his life for that, to raise and make us his children. And that's what we celebrate as we come to the table. So Father, we thank you for the good news of freedom from our performance-based identity culture. May we, like Paul, say that we work harder than them all, but it's by the grace of God and for the glory of God. Help us as your people to, to love one another so well that we can be obscure and anonymous in our love for others. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.